In what we're doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary involuntary. We don't know the contrast organic. All right, folks, we are back. Meditations in Molotovs. I am your host. It is Monday, February 27th. This is Vince Manuelli. You're listening to the Progressive Radio Network, where you can find us here every Monday at 1 p.m. Central Time. All right, folks, there's a ton of shit going on in the world today. We have Sergio Corgan back in the studio to finish our conversation from two weeks ago. Last week, there was no pro. Yeah, I don't understand what's been happening lately. Maybe we we might have to... uh, figure something out anyway i'm here with sergio corgan sergio how you doing today i'm doing well thank you how are you good man good so we've been going to a lot of events over the last couple of weeks um shit really over the last month we'll get to the we'll get to those uh soon enough but i want to sort of take off from where we left off uh during our last conversation i'll announce some things that are happening locally here uh, at the end of the show, but I'm also interested to get back to our conversation. So to catch folks up, Sergio's family's coming over to the United States. He's in high school in Philadelphia, well, just outside of Philadelphia or in Philadelphia, and then decides to join the United States Marine Corps where we eventually meet. Okay, so bring us up to that period of time. Why did you join the Marine Corps? How did you end up in the Marine Corps? And what was your first impressions getting to boot camp and all of that? Well, I think that one of the primary reasons uh, to join the military was to get away from the, uh, <clears throat> just to hang out, the people I was hanging out with and the way, the way that that path. Okay. So Sergio, what the hell did you join the Marine Corps for? So anyways, as we're talking, uh, <laughs> trying to talk, uh, it was, of course, to get out of the uh, surrounding friends, um, not being ready for college. And then, of course, when 9-11 happened, that gave a boost. And as I mentioned in the past show, that instead of Navy, I chose the Marine Corps because sure. I figured that uh, they'd probably be the first people to uh, fight and uh, get some action. And, of course, living in the macho, uh, very macho society where... Um, both here and the Soviet Union as well. I mean, it's all, you know, the historical uh, significance of World War II, um, uh, different this militarism, basically growing in the militarist societies. It was kind of second nature to uh, join. And I think also um, this foolish idea that you can do something good using military means or military force, or at least the way it was presented. Okay, maybe in Cuba to a certain degree, you know, yeah, that worked. But in, you know, being here as an, as an American empire, I think it's, uh, it's a little bit foolish to think that. Nonetheless, the propaganda of uh, media and education in our schools, I think, create environments where people don't really, uh, don't clearly see things for the way they are, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, how about your parents? What did they say when you told them you're joining? Uh, well, as I mentioned in the last show, they didn't um, 
mom, of course, didn't want me to join. My father didn't want me to join, but they knew that um, I really wanted it. And so they kind of signed the papers. So um, I wasn't 18 yet. I was a few months away from being 18. And so they had to sign the papers to uh, let me go. Um, and I think they also, and, and in the back of the mind, they also thought that maybe it will bring this uh, the discipline that they tried to instill in me prior to it, maybe it will make it flourish or, uh, yeah. So you're 18, you're, you're about to turn 18. You're 18 when you go to boot camp. Uh, I was 17, oh, 17 when, I was when, you, camp, when yeah. you're in there. Okay. So you're in boot camp. You, you go to boot camp where? Uh, Paris Island, South Carolina. Ah, all right. So you're a real Marine. See, for those of you out there who God, I, you know, we don't get a chance to joke about this much in uh, left wing circles. So, yeah. So anyway, if you're if you're not a Marine, there's an ongoing joke between West Coast and East Coast Marines. East Coast Marines are real Marines. They come from Paris Island. Uh, it's nasty down there. There's bugs and it's just yeah, it's really nasty and humid and all of this. And then there's us West Coast or what we call Hollywood Marines who went to boot camp in San Diego where it was nice and dry and 75 to 80 degrees every day and no bugs. So, but there were hills, but they weren't big hills. <laughs> That's it, Sergio. It's, all right. So you're in Paris Island. What are your thoughts? You're what, what you get to boot camp. What was boot camp like for you? Well, at first it was intense because you jump in there. People start screaming at you. I think it wasn't uh, less of people screaming at me, but more, it was more about just all these new things that you had to learn, uh, not to learn, basically you already knew them, but you had to relearn uh, doing them. Um, being 17 and I had about a, um, well, I got in May 20th, I think, and my, my birthday's June 27th. So I had about, about had about a month and 17 days to, um, to kind of change my mind. So that was um, at, at certain points of time, I had that uh, idea that maybe I should just get out, you know, <laughs> before it's too late. Uh, but no, I mean, it's... Uh, then, I didn't even know that was an option. If you're 17, oh, if yeah, you're so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I was going to yeah. say, I didn't even know there was an option. I just remember being there and being like, fuck, if I go, this is it. Like, and then I got on the, you got on the bus and then you get there and you're like, holy shit, now I really can't turn back. But then I saw some rabble rousers, like well, usually older people. They were like in their 30s, you know, and they joined. They were like 28, 29, 30. Those are the guys who were like telling drill instructors to fuck off because they had been in the real world. But I was, you know, 18. So I was like, well, whatever this guy says, I basically have to do it because otherwise I don't know what they're going to do to me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which, you know, and, uh, you know, of course, having an accent and being an immigrant, I also got an extra, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, they were pushing me. I mean, I... They, you know, they push people to kind of break that, to break the spirit into this idea of a warrior spirit. You know, they want you to snap like they want you to snap there. If you snap there, they achieve their goal. You know, they broke you like they uh, they did that. And I think so psychologically, I think it was pretty intense because they they were telling, you know, they were making you feel like you're shit. Like you don't you don't mean anything. And that's I think when you when you feel that way about yourself and the people around you i'm sure you you do crazy things that, as of course we have done so uh so yeah that was that was kind of the uh i mean physically wise i think it was a little bit disappointing but um otherwise it was uh yeah it was an interesting uh it was a weird experience interesting weird experience all right so for those who don't know marine corps boot camp is 13 weeks long 
So you're in May. I know you were several months ahead of me. So you get to School of Infantry in what, August? Yeah, end of August. Okay. And uh, so we had to wait a little bit to pick up classes because of uh, 9-11. The infantry school was overbooked. Everybody wanted to go into infantry. So uh, we were waiting for a class to pick up. Uh, and so we picked up the class. We did the training. Training was really basic. Nothing, nothing um, just just shooting weapons and doing different tactics, maneuvers. Um, and then uh, they basically called us all up and uh, they made like a special formation and they said that we're going to California to skeleton units. And so, and everybody was like, oh, if you're going to California, that means you're going to be the first to invade Iraq. You know, so everybody was excited because we, we knew we were going to go see some action, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, that was the experience in um, uh, School of Infantry. Okay, so you are out of the school of infantry you go to your skeleton unit what were those experiences like give us a time frame well um this is what because the... so it's end of october okay. i think it's some somewhere around end of october uh we get to san diego uh we were supposed to be with the fifth marines uh and we were they they we got in uh they called us in and they were like oh no you got to move somewhere else so we were just getting pushed around everywhere so we got to these barracks uh, we woke up the next morning and, uh, one of the sergeants or corporals came in and he's like, and he was basically messing around with us. He's like, you guys got lucky. You're going to an oasis in the middle of a desert. So of course, being a uh, dumbass, I, I really thought we're going to an oasis in the middle of the <laughs> desert. <laughs> Cause you know, being in San Diego, 29 my... Palms though is what they were talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, you know, it, being in San Diego, seeing all this beauty, you know, it was my first time in California. So it was, it was pretty exciting. So I really thought we were going to an oasis. <laughs> uh, and then, so we, we left pretty early. It was still dark. So a lot of us were sleeping on the bus. Oh, so, then so you we... didn't get to see the ride there. <laughs> Holy shit. No, I didn't. Yeah. And then as soon as we started pulling in, like I felt the heat just smoldering yeah. through the glass. Hell you know? yeah. <laughs> I woke up, you know, sweating. And I looked around and I, I knew it was going to be bad. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> that was like, that was bad. <laughs> So for those who don't know out there, um, if you talk to any Marines or if you know of any Marines, I, I often I've I've obviously run into I would say I would comfortably say thousands of veterans in the last 11 years. And I will say that as soon as I tell them where I was stationed, nine ninety nine out of 100 times, they'll be like, oh, man, I'm sorry, that place is fucked up. And it's true. So 29 Palms is a really screwed up place. It's in the middle of the Mojave Desert, for those who don't know, which is in the Inland, Inland Empire of California, southeastern California, a place very few people frequent unless they're in Palm Springs or if they're going to Coachella. Other than that, you don't go to the Inland Empire for much unless you're looking for methamphetamines or trouble. And um, yeah, so that's where 29 Palms is. Okay, so your first impressions of 29 Palms, what did you guys do there for the four months before? When did you guys leave for Kuwait? Uh, we left for Ku Kuwait on February 2nd of 2003. Uh, and so we got to the unit in November. Uh, of course, a lot of hazing, a lot of messing around, a lot of running around, a lot of training, nonstop training. Um, so trying to prepare, get ready. And then we come back. Yeah, but what did you think of the training? Um, 
What kind of training? Well, in the beginning, I mean, we were doing a lot of humps and we were doing a lot of drills, like body rushes and all that stuff. So that was a little bit confusing because I couldn't figure out what exactly uh, what it's for because because <laughs> you didn't hike anywhere in Iraq. And yeah, 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 yeah. Buddy yeah. team rush anywhere. You know, I mean, like I figured that if we go to Iraq, yeah. a lot of the you know a lot of uh, conflicts going to take place in the urban environment. You know, that was kind of obvious. Right. So when we're doing urban environment training at uh, Camp Pendleton, like it was. Whatever. I mean, it was it was okay to get the basics, but I think that the training was not. I don't think it was appropriate for for anything that we were doing. I mean, it was very aggressive, and I guess so. It's appropriate for build uh, team building exercises, mm-hmm. and I think it's appropriate for exactly what Marines are for to invade and kind of do this this first wave of uh, violence. So you have to be very aggressive. You have to be this. So I, I, I kind of get, get what are they coming from, but it was also, I think kind of, um, a little bit behind the curtain, what we should have been doing. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it was pretty, it was actually the training when we got to the unit, the training actually got to a point where it was pretty intense and it was, it was kind of at that point, I felt like, uh, the Marine Corps is what it, is in the sense so in terms of yeah not going to school of course not going to different awesome schools it was a little bit different disappointing but like doing these continuous trainings these exercises always humping you know like up the hills up the ridges with all the equipment running shooting so that was kind of exciting um nonetheless yeah i mean we were just um you know trying to understand what's going on and then when we got back from the christmas vacation uh christmas break or whatever it's called now, our first Sergeant Devaney basically told us that, hey, you know, we're packing our things. February, we're most likely going to Kuwait and we're going to be, uh, you know, and, and so he was. And so that's you, and so that's, they, they told you you guys were going to be the, the first wave. Yeah, we're, we're going to be the first wave. And he was and he was actually the first, uh, not the first, but like the direct, I felt like the first uh, wave of dehumanization. Of course, the training is is part of dehumanization but dehumanization towards iraqis you know like a lot of uh, basically everybody in the chain of command were saying that hey you got to be get ready like we might have to shoot children and kids because they blow themselves up you know like all this all this crazy stuff they were telling us that and that's why yeah so that was very um so that was like i i just remember settling it in you know and being like oh man like you know things are about to get really serious you know um, and yeah, and so we weren't ready. I mean, we really felt like we were not ready, of course. And as we were, you know, as we were training and as we we're right before deployment, we had more people coming in. So, I mean, we had some people that came in two, three days before we deployed and they deployed with us without any training, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and well, and there also wasn't anyone, I mean, the other thing too, that people forget is that there wasn't a, uh, a generation of people who had been, uh, sort of a war fighting class. Like, so after, Vietnam, you have a a break in in uh, conventional warfare. So you have the Gulf War, but there weren't that many people who actually served in the Gulf War. And those who did, uh, many of whom didn't really see the kind of combat operations that were going on in Iraq in 2003 or Afghanistan after 2001. So I also found that interesting because it, it seemed like there was, you know, of course, where you should be looking like your higher command and so on. Like they they really were also people who had never really been to war. So I think that that's interesting in and of itself. So anyway, I just want to tell people that part. Talk to me about 
the initial invasion? What were your impressions of the first deployment? Um, you don't have to get into details and stuff. Just kind of an overview of what you thought. Well, when we got to Kuwait, uh, of course, we were training. We were just training, 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 training. Um, I think the funniest thing was uh, when we went on this 5K or maybe 10K uh, march, uh, rock march or whatever they're called. I forgot all the terminologies by now. Um, We had probably 75% or maybe 50% of people prepped out. They weren't able to handle the heat with all the weight on, you know. And so (laughs) that was a little... So like that at, fighting machine. Yeah, that yeah. this is where like these uh this roller coaster comes in. It's like as soon as I thought they were like, okay, so you know, we do this uh pretty intense training, you know, this heat, like we're ready to invade and then we go this little march and then people just start, you know, falling down basically, overheating, you know, having uh, heat strokes and all whatever. So that was, you know, up and down. Uh so the invasion, I mean, okay, uh propaganda of course it was going like we continuous continuous um gas mask drills uh raids all that stuff so maybe stuff was going on somewhere well, um, they had everyone thinking that there was going to be chemical weapons yeah, used on us yeah. that's what i kept hearing yeah of course yeah of course <laughs> and so like that was the main so like everybody was freaked out and i remember uh, i'm not going to mention his name but when he uh got shot with that uh with one of the needles by accident that gets you out of the shock and stuff <laughs> I thought he was going to die it was wild in the tent <laughs> uh, uh and so yeah so during the invasion it was just really quick it was very fast it was push 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 slow push slow push slow like either supplies were ahead of us either we were too ahead of the supplies um honestly it was just a lot of um innocent people on the roads like just a lot of dead people who were killed by airstrikes um and of course the friendly casualties as well a lot of them um as far as i remember but it was um yeah it was just really uh it felt like it was very disorganized um chaotic uh but yeah and it's just uh it was push and go stuff. So you guys, so you guys eventually, the the unit ends up in uh, on the Joff. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about your experiences there, and then coming home from the first deployment. So the experience there was uh, well, the interesting thing. So uh, Saddam gets captured. We're still there. So like uh, we were. Oh uh, well, we were. We were in charge of the mayor's house. We were guarding a mayor who was in Bathurst party who we later arrested and whatever happened. We don't know what happened to him. We were also guarding the prison and on the job that I think actually where most of the um, Baghdadi and all those guys were in prison. So it was small at that time because it was just the beginning. Uh, And then it grew because that's where the prison was, where a lot of those guys were in prison. Um, so, and it was interesting. So one of our, our, our first sergeant had this weird cowboy and Indian thing going on with, uh, Al Sadr, uh, the main clerk, you know, um, in Najaf cause he was in charge there. So it was always like, uh, initiating, you know, they would drive on convoys on Humvee and he would stop in front of his house and like, uh, Al Sadr would come out and he would, they would just like he would just stare him down. Just this crazy cowboy shit. Like, totally nuts. <laughs> totally crazy. You know. Oh, um, so, I mean, it was just chaos. I mean, we, I mean, 
I think all the way up to the command, like we did not perceive that uh, that place as like liberators. We perceived it as occupiers. Sure. So like we like we were the police there, like whatever we wanted to do, like we we could do, you know. Um, And so, you know, we would drive recklessly, uh, do patrols recklessly, uh, take things away from people, um, you know, harass people. Uh, We were guarding an ammo depot where they, uh, and so and that's where, you know, a lot of people were going there to make money, basically get those uh, bronze, uh, for for artillery, the bronze stuff, you know, and just different pellets that you can ignite fires with, you know, really quick without using a lot of fuel, you know. And so, like, a lot of us were guarding that and, you know, our orders were to, uh, you know, shake them up and, like, do all that kind of stuff or arrest them. And so when they would get arrested, they would get brought to the camp and then, you know, people would, you know, pour cement into their mouth, do all kinds of weird stuff. Because like we were, we were just always perceiving perceiving Iraqis as enemies. So they tried to change this when. So you come home from the first deployment, and what I can see happening is that this will be a three part conversation, or maybe longer. But I but so you're you're coming home from. I don't. I, I want to move on because there's so much other stuff to talk about. But I'm thinking about um, you're coming home. From the first deployment, the unit starts talking about stability and security operations, what were first called SASO operations, and then they became a more specific and called mm-hmm. them counterinsurgency operations. Mm-hmm. Tell me about coming, talk to us about coming home from the first deployment, what that was like, because I know at first the unit where they were telling us, look, you guys. Or, you know, you might be going to Okinawa. The war's over. Mm-hmm. People thought the war was over when Bush made it his announcement and all that mm-hmm. crazy shit. Okay, so talk to me a little bit about coming home from the first deployment and then when the unit and the government really tried to change the rhetoric around what was going on in the war mm-hmm. in terms of, uh, um, you know, trying to trying to to paint it as something other than an occupation that it, that it was then turned into these stability and support or it's yeah, stability and support operations, SASO operations. Well, one thing I really want to uh, mention, which is important. And when Saddam did get caught um, and when they did find out, basically it was official that there are no weapons of mass destruction. Like I think, I hope some of the people that maybe served with us are listening to hope they remember that. A lot of us, when we found out there's no WMDs, like a lot of us put down our weapons and our Sergeant Alfred was running around freaking out because we were all on post and we said that we don't want to do it. Like, we just want to go home. You know, there's no reason for us to be here. Mm-hmm. And so so then and so we'll go through that transition. So like transition of being um, occupiers, you know, like kind of like, hey, we don't want to be here. And then coming home and then the first resistance from the Iraqis starting to flare up. And then they're telling us, hey, you might, guys, you might just go to uh, Okinawa because we were the last and the longest unit, Marine Corps unit that was in Iraq during the after the invasion. Um, And so. Yeah, so we, we come back, and I think that's we started doing uh, Sasso right after Najaf exploded, right? Was it right? Uh, I can't remember. I'm I'm thinking of. Uh, I am thinking of. Well, it was the it was in the fall. 
everybody's back by October. Mm-hmm. People have a little time off, and then starting in th- oh, around yeah, Thanksgiving, right, yeah. everybody starts the Sasso operations, and they basically yeah, lead yeah. all the way through the spring, spring yeah. until everybody leaves again in in April. Yeah. So then, what? So what? What did you make of like when the unit tried to change? Because everybody was obviously, I think, bloodthirsty at first, and then when they told the unit, when they told us, okay, you guys have to go back, and you're going back no matter what. Then people got really pissed, and people were like, "Well, I'm gonna fucking kill." Or like, people yeah. got into this weird mode where it was like, "Well, if I gotta go back, two things happen. Number one, everybody started talking about killing people." And number two, and w- which was interesting because people were more bloodthirsty, I feel like, the second time they yeah, went through than the first time. And the second time was right around the time that the command was trying to kind of – which is contrary. Now, the command put us in this situation. There's all kinds of ways to look at this. But what is interesting, if we really want to talk about it, is that a lot of what happened, at least from my perspective, wasn't necessarily um, commands from the top down. It was a lot of people. This this thing just boiled, like yeah. at the surface, and in, in the in the lower ranks among the Marines that we were around. Yeah. That people were like, "Well, if I got to go back, one, I'm going to act ruthless as hell because I'm I'm coming home no matter what if they're going to make me go back again." And then number two, what that did was for several months. I mean, almost up to a year, people were going out on the weekends and taking time off or leave is what we call it in the military. And I mean, I myself included in drinking and smoking and snorting and swallowing everything in yeah. sight because your thought was we're going to die. So, <laughs> like, all right, well, well, since we're going to die, we've got seven months to get it all out. So that was the mentality. Um, talk to us about leading up to that second deployment. What, what, where were you at? What, what were you thinking? At that time, because you eventually break off from our platoon, mm-hmm. from third platoon, and you end up as a scout sniper. Actually, talk to us about that. Well, so, like, we were doing that SASTO training. Um, and then, so we were still thinking that we we're going to Okinawa. So everybody's happy. You know, you can imagine everyone's like, oh, we're going to be on the beach. You know, like, we can go to Japan. Then we can go to Cobra Gold and Philippines or whatever, Thailand, whatever. So I think they were just lying to us to keep us in the good spirits right after we came back because, mm-hmm. of course, you know, a lot of DUIs, a lot of people, you know, going to jail because they were beating their wives, they were killing their wives, they were beating their girlfriends, they were yeah, killing their crazy. girlfriends. It was really, really crazy, really crazy. Um, and so and so they kept telling us this, we were doing the SESO training, and then, um, and then I think when we found out that we're all going back um, – I think a lot of people uh, let their guard down. So like, as you were saying, they got really angry. And so like the anger really took over. And uh, I just felt like as we were training and like different, different people who, <clears throat> okay, one thing is, you know, resisting, like resisting, you know, maybe uh, resisting like uh, one of the guys did during the first deployment, he put his gun down and he just invaded with us without a gun. Mm-hmm. Um, then of course it was after the second deployment, you know, the resistance that you and, uh, uh Nick as well did, you know, and other people who, um, who went UA because that's the only, you know, that's the only thing they saw. And so like, I don't know, I didn't feel comfortable. Like I knew we had to go, like, I didn't know, 
I guess, like, as we talked before, like, if there were uh, some kind of military resistance, if there was a GI resistance movement around that base, maybe it would have been different. But we didn't have any outlets, you know, we just like, I knew we had to go back. And I felt like I wanted to, um, I just wanted to be around people who I consider or I thought were more professional or more dedicated. So like, I was basically... I did not want to get killed by somebody's mistake. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like, I don't, you know, it's okay. Getting, yeah, because everyone yeah. was drunk and on yeah. drugs and no one was really taking the training too seriously. Exactly. And yeah, the, and di- so, the discipline and morale was in the toilet. Exactly. And so, and, you know, and so like I, and there were tryouts because the uh, scout sniper platoon was empty and uh, all the senior guys were leaving. Our guys were leaving. And so they were this way. And um, <clears throat> I felt like, uh, well, we wanted to go, uh, myself, Adams, and a few guys, Clark, we all wanted to go to recon, but they didn't let us go for the tryouts for special forces. And so like, and so I decided to go for uh, Indoc. And so I went, I tried out, and so I thought that it was basically going to uh, it's gonna help me out. Well, you have to explain what that is. Uh, induct. It's indoctrination. It's basically two, three days or four days, however long. I mean, it's it's kind of continuous process. But, but the it's initial the test to be a scout. Yeah, driver. it's 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 like a very physical, uh, very rigorous uh, physical uh, thrash session uh, with uh, pack on your back, and everywhere you go, you run. You, it's it's uh, different mind games, different memory games, uh, Kim's games they called. Um, so all these. Just, just very intense. No sleep. You are, you don't have time to eat. Maybe one cracker and a little bit of peanut butter. And you're just running. You're doing land navigation. You're swimming. You just whatever. All these different things to basically weed out the uh, people who um, physically they're not able or mostly uh, psychologically not able to handle it. Um, and so once I got into the platoon, like it felt, I felt a little bit more comfortable about deploying because people around we trained all the time. Mm-hmm. And people around were very serious about it because we, I mean, the main, I, I think the main idea was that we really wanted to come home, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes, of course, people wanted to kill as well. I mean, it's, it's not, I, I'm not going to uh, exclude that. But I think a lot of it, it was people just trying to come home and they wanted to be uh, around people who they uh, trusted maybe or relied on, could rely on, mm-hmm. which didn't really end up. But Okay. Well, so there, so there we go. So before leaving, I was completely cynical, uh, as I've told the listeners in this program, and as I'm sure many people listening to this already know, but for those who don't, right before my second deployment, uh, a gentleman from the platoon took me to go see Michael Moore's film. So this was leading into a bunch of things that had happened uh, in the previous months, of course, me being back home with my family and visiting friends who were coming home from college and asking a uh, a lot of uh, political questions for the first time in my life. So I go into the second deployment extremely cynical, uh, at that point completely opposed to the war, and um, totally freaked out that I was going to die in this in this BS war. We are not together. I am in Al-Qaim. You are in Huseyba. Uh, these two towns, I'm on, the, I'm, I'm on the south side of the Euphrates River, about five miles from the Syrian border, you are north of the Euphrates River. Tell us about that deployment, whatever you want to talk about. Obviously, we don't have to get into details once again, but just kind of an overview of 
what happened during that deployment, your experience with the scout snipers. And then, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the second deployment was very, very different and very, very strange, um, in, in all aspects. Uh, well, first off all, we did not really have contact with people as we did during on the job, uh, deployment. Second off, I mean, that's it. I, uh, it was, everything was the violence, was, the resistance, not the violence, but the resistance from the different fractions in Iraq uh, against the invaders was really intense, which was good. It was really good. I mean, I give, I mean, with, with the lack of training, as we've seen that uh, film meet the resistance, mm-hmm. uh, I think with the lack of uh, training and with the lack of equipment that they had i mean i think they did a great job i mean they really they um if they if they united if they actually unified under the single idea of kicking out the invaders i think they could have kicked us out so much so much sooner and so much and these are it's always upsetting for me to see that fractions and this is where i learned that iraq is really fractured as well because we were dealing uh different uh gangs or um uh, fractions within the city of Huseiba, they all had uh, people who were informants for us who were getting paid. And so, like, they were all trying to obtain power, you know, obtain more power within that city. So those fractions did not allow them to truly smash us. I mean, they could have. I mean, we were just in the little square yeah. right outside the city. They could have done a great job, but they didn't because of the fractions. So that was another thing. Um violence was yeah violence was high uh they were more and so like during this time is it was i don't even know how to um this is where i really start realizing that what is going on here is really wrong and i think it's um so initially during the Invasion, we had all we had this huge movement that was supporting us. So we were always hearing about the Dixie Chicks or whatever, like all those bands that were standing up against the war and how they were, you know, how we spoke against <laughs> Dixie Chicks. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, and uh, you know, and like this time there was nothing, you know, and um, and also like the first day, the first day that we arrived, we lost our company commander, uh, mm-hmm. one of our lieutenants, mm-hmm. and uh, two guys, you know, and bunch of wounded so like it started this uh deployment with the well first off fear um of course and then that fear turned into anger you know and that anger turned into this uh mis uh misguided um decision making sure and i think a lot of uh this is what we saw a lot of people just uh just lost it you know Mm -hmm. uh there was a Mm -hmm. large abuse of uh, a couple of our corpsmen's they were uh prosecuted for uh, distributing uh, opiates to troops because they were just, you know, they were coming from, especially the guys who were in Hummer, in the Humvees and the patrols. Oh, man, they would just go out there and get blown up all the time without, you know. Yeah, people don't realize. So I've told people this in the past, but we had coke. We So we had cocaine. We had marijuana. There was alcohol there. Uh, you see, you could bring whatever you wanted to Iraq, at least up until that point. I don't, you know, subsequent deployments, people, I'm sure it was much different. And from what I've, from the vets I've spoken to, it is much, it was much different. But nonetheless, at that time, you could bring whatever you wanted there. On the way home, you had to still pass through customs, so you can really take shit back home. So nonetheless, my point being, we were very much out there. 
this is something that I've thought about a lot because I'm a big fan of geography. And so the thing is, is a lot of people, um, number one, a lot of people didn't in where, where we were during that second deployment, there was no media and there were no politicians or anyone traveling out there. So some of these politicians and media that people were seeing back in 2004, 2005, that you would get those reports from Iraq, they were very often from bases that were pretty secure and they were from either the green zone and or one of the bigger air bases like Al-Assad Air Base or whatever. Nonetheless, so we were very much out there and I think about this because there was a serious lack of oversight and there was uh, drug abuse and alcohol abuse and the levels and the amount of war crimes and atrocities and so on these are all things that I've obviously talked about in the past. These are things that you and I have testified to Congress about. We've spoken all over the country and indeed all over the world about these topics. And so I guess to say it a different way, there's no reason to really get into all of that. I think people understand that that deployment for, for um, I think both of us was uh, definitely a turning point, if not sort of the nail in the coffin. So, so tell me, sort of about what you're thinking at the end of that deployment and then coming back now. We're talking, what, when, when did we come back? Uh, March 2005. April. April? Yeah, March, April. March, April 2005. Okay, so we're coming back at that time. What are your thoughts? Well, at that point, is uh, uh, a lot of us, a lot of our patrolling from our base, from our camp, um, were stopped by the um, higher, uh, higher ops. Uh, because just too many people were getting blown up, and so they they would call in they would call in Al Qaeda all these patrols, but these patrols would never go out, especially the motorized ones. So, and a lot of us a lot of us start questioning a lot of things. And uh, but mostly, what important I think struck me is when I came back uh, right before we went on our seventy two, the uh, NCIS Navy Criminal Investigation Services came, picked me up from the office and picked up a few guys from, um, from our old, from, from your platoon at that time, you know, and they were basically interrogating us about war crimes and, uh, and on the job mm-hmm. or mistreatment, whatever. Um, so it was interesting, you know, I mean, I didn't, I mean, I, the interesting part about it, of course, they swept it under the rug because it didn't get anywhere. Uh, the interesting part that I didn't even, I didn't really have to lie because every time they were asking us what we were doing, I was just saying that these were orders from our captain, CO, or whatever. Right. And so, like, they they wanted, I mean, the interrogation was probably about seven, eight hours. I mean, it basically came to a point at the end because they keep going, trying to, trying to have me say that, no, it was us just individually we decided it mm-hmm. um and so i was connecting everything to the chain of command because i'm not a well first off i'm not a dumbass mm-hmm. uh, number two it's um i i didn't even know what what was really going on you know mm-hmm. um and so at that moment but then when this ended um that really like i really start to um i really start to uh putting the puzzle together and putting everything. And of course we started talking about stuff too. When we would meet, you know, everybody was really wasted. Like everybody was really messed up. Cause I think everyone realized that we've done a lot of messed up things that we shouldn't have done. <clears throat> and 
I mean, the drug, I remember the drug abuse was oh, horrific. I mean, we'd just go to Mexico, do cocaine, you know, we'd see our uh, people who were in charge of us doing crack, meth, snoring in the hotels, you know, inviting us. I mean, it was really intense. Um, yeah. And yeah, there were people huffing gas. That's how desperate people were to get buzzed up. And so our main, I remember, and I basically came back, and I, as soon as I found out that I don't have to deploy the third time, I uh, came to my scout, senior scout. He was an asshole. Uh, and I told him that I'm leaving uh, since I don't have to deploy. I want to get out, you know. And so they they were really pissed off. They called me a traitor, that I betrayed them and all this shit. And, uh, and then uh, they, they, had, they had me sitting in the room like the whole day not talking to anybody. You know, they were threatening me to send me to a different unit like Suicide Charlie. They're like, what do you think your last, last time? You just got to have a good time. So anyway, so I got out and came back to you guys. And, and that's where... Um, that's when I we did that mushroom. We did those uh, really good uh, golden flake mushrooms <laughs> <laughs> that came from Sacramento or somewhere, and uh, and that was I think that that kind of also sealed the deal as well. Um, that it was a really intense trip, and I was lying in my bed, and we had a we had a, a formation at six in the morning, and so I went there, and. Um, I was standing there and the officer was late. And so I came up to start an offer and I told him, I, this is my two week notice. And he thought I was joking. And he was like, what do you mean? I'm like, I'm done. I quit. He's like, but you can't, you still have a year left or whatever. And I was like, no, man, I'm, I'm done. Like, I'm not, I can't do this. Like, this is not, you know, I just can't do this. And uh, he freaked out and he was like, well, what do you mean the officer? What am I going to tell him? I'm like, tell him if if you guys don't let me go, I will kill every single motherfucker in this place. <laughs> and and so after that, Sarn Alfred kind of made a deal with me to uh, he would basically come every morning, knock on my window and I would just have to uh, move the curtain and let him know that I'm alive and that I'm present. He would just mark me off. So the rest of my time was basically spent. Um, wearing pajama pants and um, eating a lot of sleeping pills and drinking a lot of alcohol and, you know, trying to figure, I guess, trying to process everything and trying to figure out what's going on. And uh, and that's when we're having all these conversations and stuff. And then, you know, talking yeah, about so our it. good friend Luke, who's who might be listening or eventually listen to this show, he um, we shared his my room was connected to his room. Or something like this. You were upstairs. That was later. Yeah, that was later. There was a room that was connected to his room. Trying to think. No, we weren't. We were just next door to him. Yeah, it was him and It was next door, yeah. Because we shared a room with these two. Nick and I shared a room with these two people we didn't know. But then it was, yeah. And then it was Cody and all them. So, all right. So, uh, we're using their restroom in the barracks. The head, as we called it, smoking tons of dope, drinking, talking to each other, taking psychedelics, talking about how everybody feels bad and we don't want to be killers anymore. And all of this stuff that sounds very cliche and hippy dippy. But uh, for those of you who've had um, serious psychedelic experiences that have been uh, substantial in your life and have been you found them to be productive and a growing experience, then I think you'll understand what we're talking about. 
And that's not to say that you need those to to have those experiences. That's just to say that I think it's a it's a key or a tool or an aid or whatever you want to call it. In any case, you get out. We only have 10 minutes left. So talk to me actually a little bit about getting out of the military and what that was like for you. Because then the next time we talk, which maybe it'll be next week, maybe it'll be in the next few weeks, but we'll eventually start. start. I would like to also get into how both of us became involved with Iraq Veterans Against the War and testifying to Congress and working with the anti-war movement for many years and then all the things that you, you've went off and, and have lived in places like India and the Netherlands. And, and now you, you, you know, you're shooting a documentary in Ukraine and all these other projects that definitely a lot more to talk about than just military experiences. But I do know that some people, actually a lot of people will find uh, a lot of this interesting. So talk to me in the last eight, nine minutes that we have today about coming home from the military and what that was like uh, now with these new thoughts, with these experiences. And where did you end up? You Did you go back to Philadelphia with your yeah. parents or did you end up, because you eventually lived with a friend of ours in Texas. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I had to go home because my account was in negatives uh, due to heavy drinking and uh, drug abuse in the military. Um, so I lived at home for about six months to get back on my feet and stuff. Um, coming home was really weird because not, I mean, things were going on, of course, but uh, it was strange to see the difference between what's going on taking place in Iraq and uh, just the basic uh, everyday life of uh, being in the U.S., you know, being back home. Um, a lot of, obviously, uh, well, the first thing I did actually do to our uh, one of our NCOs, one of our corporals who served uh, Bayhart, he told me to go to VA, uh, to the Veterans Administration, and check in and just do, like, physical, whatever, just, just go through uh, initial uh, check and stuff. And then he basically told me to, hey, you know, look into these things and make sure you take care of it. That will help you in the future. And so I did that. I had a couple appointments. They prescribed me some pills uh, that I took for a week or two. Uh, it made me feel really weird. Um, and so I stopped taking them. It was still, I mean, I was working. Um, I was uh, drinking heavy. Um, was thinking of doing, going and joining the um, basically mercenaries, uh, contractors uh, to make some money, you know. Um, but... Uh, good it didn't turn out and then in September I started school uh, and we were still talking about stuff and once I started school I realized that I I don't it was this I guess it was just being depressed uh, being very depressed and incapable or unable to uh, properly process the information everything that happened in the past four years and so and that led to um yeah, it was getting intense I mean there were times when we would go out like with my friends and stuff and I would have these uh panic attacks slash flashbacks you know and it was just i was i was hating myself well well the interesting thing is that all that was result of basically hating myself so i remember one time being in the shower and uh i was just processing everything that happened and everything that i did and everything i was part of and i start like i realized i don't know it was it was uh self-realization of what kind of dirt it was and what I did and 
even realizing that a human being is capable of doing this. Uh, I mean, I literally start uh, puking in the shower, you know, like I had so much pain, like not not even pain, but disgust that I was I was just standing there and it was gagging, puking, gagging, you know, for about, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes. And then I came out and that's and that's when I became cold, you know, like I disconnected, like everything became disconnected. And so and as I start reading and I start looking into things and uh, studying, reading books and uh, having more conversations about stuff uh, that helped me to start kind of creating uh, understanding that I have the means as a human being to uh, do something about it, uh, at least try to uh uh, contribute, dedicate my time to doing something to fix it or understand it and then uh, trying to process it. And so obviously that takes many different forms over the years, eventually doing a lot of activist work and so on. I think that's a good spot to end today because I think that's a universal story there. I mean, the, so the universal lesson or the story for most folks, I think, is, you know, I think all of us have done things in our lives that we're not proud of. I think we've all done things in our lives that have been very destructive, uh, either to ourselves or others or both. And how you process that and what you do with that knowledge or with that experience, I think is really what the story is. So I don't think that the story ends with the bad, you know, or with the uh, destructive. I think that the story ends uh, in whatever way you choose to sort of write the end of the story. And so I think that's important for people to think about. Maybe a good lesson to take away from the end of the program is uh, to take those experiences and to turn them into something positive. And that's, you know, I think, I, in, especially in today's world, I think that's tough because there's so much pressure on everyone. People look at social media, they look at all these other lives out there, these digital manufactured lives and people think, oh my God, I don't have this or maybe I'm not as happy or I should have this or this. My life didn't go the way that I wanted it to go or this person has such a nice house or all these other things. And I, I really think that it's important for people to ground themselves and to decide, okay, where do you go right now? What decisions do you make today, tomorrow? What do you choose to do? And that is something that I think people can take away from a lot of these experiences and people that I've interviewed on the program. Uh, these are a lot of people who are extremely inspiring people. You know, I was thinking of Charles, Charles Glass's work again. I mean, this is someone who had been blown up. This is someone uh, who has uh, a wealth of experience traveling throughout these war-torn nations and reporting and writing in a way that's accessible for people so they can better understand these issues. So... Thanks for being here, Sergio. Always a pleasure. I don't know if we'll have Sergio next week. Maybe we will, or maybe we'll have someone else. I don't know. We will have a third portion of the conversation so we could talk more about our organizing experience, experiences and Sergio's after military experiences overseas and so on. There's another book I had told people about uh, about the commodification of feminism called We Were Feminists Once. I want to have that author on the program ASAP. So maybe I'll have her on next week. I also wanted to have my friend Lear Keith on to talk to her. I wanted to have her back in December, but there's some scheduling conflicts and I needed to reach out to her again. There's a bunch of folks actually, but yeah, 
Anyway, you're listening to Meditations and Molotovs. I'm your host, Vince Emanuele. This is the Progressive Radio Network where you could find us every Monday at 1 p.m.